0: Family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live! Come on,
1: be human and give, give, give! <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a
2: part of being human! Aho! Girl, greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Granthi, your host. Looking forward to two hours of conversational improvisation. Marshall McLuhan, what was he doing? Just giving us insights into the 21st century. Uh, which is the more effective way to learn? Instruction or discovery? We'll dive into that and play you a little McLuhan and show you how he put on an audience. John Lewis, how nonviolence can create cultural change. Victoria will give us some insights and connect him to two other rather powerful leaders. We will have some insights from our favorite street philosopher, Patrick Carlin. jazz from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini. Joining us in the conversation today not one but two illustrious co-hosts she is our woodstock roundtable poet laureate saugetarian socialite victoria sullivan we get a poem among other things from her and ron van Wormer, who is a on-air weekend warrior here at radio woodstock plays great music and will give us some of his insights as we talk for a couple of hours we always leave room for surprises because guess what they find us We will be opening up the Woodstock Roundtable Jukebox. Summer fun awaits. So, inject some caffeine into the old brain or whatever else gets you kick-started. Fasten your seatbelts and join us for the Woodstock Roundtable. Open the pot bay doors, Hal. Good morning, Victoria. Good morning, Doug. Good morning, Ron. And good morning to you. Uh, here we are, August. Uh, yes, it snuck up on us. It has gone, man, we're just racing through this pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> or not.
3: But time has totally lost its sense of meaning. Isn't It has changed. It,
2: yes. Einstein was correct. He got it right. Time <laughs> yeah. is relative. And, uh, you know, it's uh, the consequences are going to be very interesting to watch it because, you know, it's never been tried before. Closing down a global economy and most countries shutting down their societies and not trying to reopen them. Interesting experiment. Yeah. It's not working real well, is it? <laughs> uh, I haven't seen any bumps in the road. Oh, no. But, you know, I think we'll learn a lot from it i I
3: really do I, I mean I think you learn even a on, lot from
2: car crashes too well
3: on the economic <laughs> level um we know that there's been enormous injustice, and maybe when we start up again, we'll start up a little more conscious
2: there's very there's some a little bit of evidence for that a little bit of evidence for that there's, there's hope um there's always some always some of that uh, but you know i i i the older i get the less. Um, I invest in hope, mm. not because I'm more cynical, but because I think hope is is a very overrated. Is hope an emotion? It's kind of uh, it's, a, or is it? A, it's a it's a mental strategy, but you know. But hope is sort of necessary to keep going. I agree with you. We need a little <laughs> hope, just like you need a little lubricant sometimes to keep the engine going, right? But no, I've thought about this. Um, what you know, if we really analyze hope and. Since we're going to be checking in with Professor McLuhan, who forces us to relook at almost everything, yes. Um, what does hope really mean? It means, okay. It really, it, it, hope means you're really not willing to to look
3: at what's actually happening. I don't know if that's true. Maybe because you're looking at what's happening, you choose to hope that things will get as better as opposed
2: to <laughs> as opposed to look at it more deeply and understand it. In other words, listen, I, I get why hope is important. Mm-hmm. I'm saying it's overrated, and I think when overused, actually prevents us from arriving
3: at what we were hoping for. It could. It could pacify. Samuel Johnson in the 18th century said, the flights of the human imagination are not from pleasure to pleasure, but from hope to hope. Who said that? Samuel Johnson. You know, he was a great essayist, maker mm. of the English Dictionary. From hope to hope. So if you're from hope to hope, you're never dealing with what's in front of you. The flights of the human imagination, he says. So in other words, imagination usually takes us somewhere. And he says that it's not just pleasure to pleasure, which some people probably do live by, but rather the flights of the human imagination. That's like John F. Kennedy saying, we do these things not because they're not – D- hard, but because they are hard, you know, we're going to go to the moon. I mean, the, the
2: yeah, but his comment leaves out the whole unconscious, which is dark and unknown, and um, uh, and and actually generates most of our behavior.
3: Um, <laughs> I- <laughs> well, it was in the 18th century, but he actually could be quite. <laughs> You're dark. the one who
1: brought him up, not he, me. He wrote dictionaries.
3: Well, he wrote a lot of brilliant <laughs> essays. He wrote a wonderful poem called The Vanity of Human Wishes, so there's another side well, to look at it. I'll, I'll the take guy, a look at that is, one. the guy is brilliant. I recommend I'm not Samuel he Johnson. Isn't brilliant.
2: <laughs> I, it has nothing to do with his, I, I know he was brilliant. I just don't think <laughs> hope to hope is the way to live. Now, Mr. McLuhan said in He didn't say message, to live that way. He said the flights of the human imagination. That
3: doesn't mean you're daily living. You're daily living, you have to get a meal.
2: Um, And
1: you better not hope for one because it ain't coming your way. Yeah. Hoping for a meal is not going to get.
2: How many calories are you going to get hoping for a meal?
3: Uh, Okay. You guys. (laughs) Let's hear Marshall McLuhan on this.
2: Well, this, this is his line, but he got this right out of Zen. There is absolutely no inevitability as long as there is a willingness to contemplate what is happening. Mm. In other words, having agreed that we all need a little bit of hope. Because we're human, right? Uh, the fact is, and this brother Krishnamurti, the great spiritual teacher, said almost the identical same thing. He said, "Meditate." What's with this formal meditation? What's with the robes? He said, e- "Either you're either you're contemplating what's happening, or you're not." The, the, and again, we all need hope. But the problem with hope is, it takes us out of contemplating what is happening. By definition, it takes us out of that. For that
3: moment, but you can't – if you contemplate exactly what's happening every minute and it's awful, 150,000 Americans dead, uh, (laughs) you know, you can get very down. If you think, well, if we do this and this right, this will start to lift. This will change. We will find some new ways of doing things. That's, you're in the moment, but you're projecting forward in no, order no, to be able no, to keep no. making well, your feet move can't, forward. Can't
1: you actively go after something and still hope for a good
2: conclusion? Look, let's get a little floppy here. You can take any point, any point, including the golden rule, take it to its extreme and make it look ridiculous, right? Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you, all right? What if the person's a masochist? It uh. wouldn't work. <laughs> uh, so you could take anything and take it to, you, you. right away you jump to the extreme. That's what politicians do. Rather than deal with the issue, the complications of the issue, by looking at it and trying to unravel and discover a solution, what we do is we take an insight, which we scares us a little bit and we just take it to its extreme to make it look ridiculous sorry not going <laughs> to accept that so and by the way and by and the way who are we talking about here anyway <laughs> and by the way uh, as the Buddhist teachers have come on the show have said the Buddha said there, and it sounds ridiculous until a really skillful Buddhist teacher can explicate it which I am not um, we are all perfect and complete lacking nothing he said it okay and he wasn't making some Something up. He that came from a deep insight that takes a lot of work to even consider that being true. Um, it takes work because we. What McLuhan did, and the reason we like him is he he is a provocateur. He is because he was so good at it. Um, he forced people, those who weren't willing to say, "Oh, he's just ridiculous," um, to think differently about things and we're going to give an example now uh we're uh, i'm picking a it's about three and a half minutes um an interview he did back in 1976 with tom brokaw and edwin newman two very very competent nbc journalists (laughs) now for those who don't remember McLuhan, for about seven or eight years, he was the zeitge- he was the zeitgeist. He was, he was the guy that everybody wanted to have on and try to have a conversation with and prove that they could stay with him. And they couldn't. And the reason they couldn't is because he explained once, only once, he was always talking from the right hemisphere of the brain. Hmm. And most of the people trying to understand him were trying to understand him with the left hemisphere of the brain. And we've talked about the two hemispheres. We'll get back into it. But they don't speak the same language. And that's why a lot of what he said sounded really, sounded both incredibly wise and ridiculous at the same time. The right brain has no problem with that. The left brain has a huge problem with that. It can't stand something it doesn't, it can't be certain it understands what it's saying. And McLuhan uh, said many times, he was putting on his audience. It didn't mean he, he was just making stuff up. It means, as he said, I don't think he says in this interview, he wasn't trying to explain something. Remember, he was, he was a professor of English <laughs> literature. Um, he wasn't trying to explain something. He was trying to get us to discover, probe, question, mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: widen our awareness, right. um, do a little uh, jujitsu and turn things upside down and see how they work and, 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 and regain our balance. And so he would have so much fun with interviewers who were trying to impress him, he would just start throwing them <laughs> banana banana peels, right. and they would slip on them every time. To Brokaw's and Newman's credit, they don't fall for that. They're one of the few. Hmm. He's also a fan of Socrates, I think, for that same thing of asking probing questions. Yes. And what's interesting in this interview, you can't if you can get it on YouTube, watch it, because you can see, and I'll ask your opinion of it, Victoria, to watch. See, again, what McLuhan's main point was that the medium is the message, meaning the underlying process of any communication has a greater effect on our brain than does the content. But the content, he said, is like the juicy piece of meat the burglar dangles and uh, throws to the guard dog to get past him. Mm. OK, so we get caught up because this is where we're taught talk- and we get totally caught up in the content. And we often miss the underlying process that's actually affecting us more. So I'm going to ask you to watch Broco and Newman, because when I first saw it, I'm going to watch it again. They they keep their cool. First of all, they're cool customers. They're experienced TV journalists. They've read McLuhan. They know McLuhan. They know he's going to be tricky. There's times where they want to go, y- 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 come on, you got to be kidding me. But they don't. <laughs> it looks like they're close. Right. And, and, and the other thing, uh, a couple things to notice is, yes, we want to know what McLuhan's saying. But more importantly, his rhythms. Notice the lack of how quickly he responds to something. That's part of what a comedian does. Mm-hmm. Right, you got to be quick, and inaccurate. and that's
3: also very right brain, I think, in a way, because yes. it's not analyzing;
2: it's not just analyzing. going for it's it. It's going for it. It's jumping into the deep end of the pool and learn then and figuring that's how I'll learn <laughs> that, how to right. swim.
3: <laughs> now, if I move my legs, okay.
2: so <laughs> now, now. hope it works. <laughs> hope it works. So, <laughs> what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> so, there, what they're going to discuss is McLuhan was paid to come in and analyze the presidential television debate between Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford. Hmm. And of course he's going to (laughs) have some (laughs) devastating words for them. But when when they show you just a quick vision of the debate, Carter and Ford are both in dark suits, stiff as boards. And Uh, And they're keeping a great social distance. And keeping a great social (laughs) distance. But anyway, what we're interested here in is not so much what he's saying, but his method of communication. And I'm going to ask you, uh, Victoria, to give us your take, not only on that, but on Brokaw and Newman, because I think they did a good job here dealing with him.
5: Marshall McLuhan is practically a household word in this uh, television-conscious society. He's from the University of Toronto, of course. The author of a book called The medium is the message and he came to New York last night so that he could watch the debates, watch them not so much from a policy point of view but from a television point
0: of view. The glorious moment was the rebellion of the medium against the bloody message. The medium finally rebelled against the most stupid arrangement of any debate in the history of debating.
5: Why was it stupid? Not from a... The
0: scripting point of view. The characters who had arranged that debate and scripted every aspect of it had no understanding of TV. And they didn't even know that TV is not a debating medium. Mm -hmm. And they had arranged it as if it were a newspaper set up or a radio set up. They had no awareness of TV. With the breakdown in the technology, the audience finally got into the act. Well, Professor McLuhan, if this debate had been arranged by people who, in your view, knew you know, and understood television, how would it have been done? Well, now, this would take quite a while to explain, but it, it would be much closer to what we're doing right here, chatting casually, spontaneously, without a script, and paying attention to what is being said. What those men said last night was merely to hold the the audience on the image. It didn't matter at all what was said last night. The, the image was what mattered and as anything that could hold the attention on the image was all that mattered from the point of view of the arrangers. Well, it, you are the uh, proponent, of course, that
5: television is a cool medium. Yes. Both candidates last night were programmed and costumed
0: yes, and made uh, up precisely. Had, had either candidate dared to present a policy, it would have destroyed his image. Was one more cool than the other from a purely no, television they're, point they're of view? No, they're both uh, in a, stort- uh, uh, a state of panic cool. They were terrified of making a false step, and well, uh, they, 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 they're quite rightly so. Because why shouldn't they be terrified? Exactly. After all,
5: why shouldn't they have all of these conditions on a television debate when they're running Beyond. for the highest office but, and they uh, want to control the environment?
0: The, with the breakdown in the mechanism, there was the wonderful revelation of all the characters who had scripted the show. They came out into the open like the, something out of the woodwork and revealed that a stupid show had been put together very carefully and by people who had no idea of what the TV medium is about. Would you argue, Professor McLuhan, that (coughs) the candidates would be better off not to debate than to debate in the manner in which they did? Of (laughs) course. The candidates They they were standing in press-the-pants barrels and looking absolutely like some straight-jacketed characters. uh, Absolutely the hottest type of medium you could imagine. Everything that the scripters and arrangers had done was hot stuff. They had no idea of what the TV medium is made of.
5: Professor McLuhan, you think that this medium is the future, that this is how society will be shaping its opinions and so on. Is the present. Is the present which and is, the future. Which
0: is also the future. Mm. <laughs> but why do you continue to print books and write books? This is a, an outlet, and uh, you might as well ask, why does somebody continue to make chewing gum? <laughs> and it's, uh, it's an outlet for various activities. But I've never been against the book, for heaven's sake. I'm a professor of literature. I, I teach books from morning till night.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, I miss him. Ugh.
3: Actually, I miss television from that period. One of the things I notice about the, the two newsmen is they're both very calm in a mm-hmm. nice way. Calm but interested. Leaning in a little but not waving their he- hands, not screaming, not getting aggressive, And I guess our culture has, from 1976 to now, it's all about screaming and pounding and
2: and raising your eyebrows and throwing your hands in the air. But see, now, again, I agree with you. But again, we've gone from one extreme to the other because, and again, I'm not speaking for McLuhan, but I've spent a lot of time with his, as I mentioned, in a project uh, with uh, his um, last Ph.D. student and personal assistant. Uh, who gave me a lot of the books that were no longer published, McLuhan really disappeared from the radar screen, won't, won't get into, well, he he just infuriated too many powerful people. <laughs> as you, you can imagine he might. Um, I, well, I'll tell the story because it's interesting, and the, the, the story is only known because I met his personal assistant. McLuhan was the go-to guy. He was, he was being paid not only by corporations to teach them how to create ads that would be more effective mm-hmm. on television. He was hired by the United States Air Force to improve their communication techniques. I mean, this guy hmm. was, th- was the liveliest, most interesting, and most well-paid intellectual in the world. But he was a gadfly. He was an outlier, and he was a, uh, what's the word I want to use? He was a pain in the ass, <laughs> and he, was, uh, he could be extremely obnoxious. Now he was he was for him respectful because mm-hmm. Newman and and he was he didn't care who he insulted like a good comedian he didn't care <laughs> right. but you could tell that he at least with one exception re- totally respected Brokaw and Newman because of just what you pointed out Victoria they were handling the interview quite uh, professionally quite intelligently most of his interviews were car crashes because people were either trying to prove they were as smart as he was he wasn't trying to be smarter than them he was just using the right hemisphere of the brain the left hemisphere can't deal with that it's like asking a an a um, an accountant or a logician to keep pace with a brilliant comedian i wonder what he He would think of
1: today's debates and how they're done on
2: he i'll tell you what i would love to get his take on donald trump because this is going to freak out all of our progressive friends because i'm we can agree that Trump is one of the most vile human beings. <laughs> Forget about being president. who's ever even been on the damn planet. But the fact is, this is the medium is the message. And if you don't learn it, we get burned again because mm-hmm. this guy got elected. Yeah. And it wasn't by accident. And it wasn't because uh, there were uh, enough um, misogynists, racists, and fundamentals to get him elected. There were a lot of those. But he needed Obama votes and he got them. Mm-hmm. So, but let's remember how he even got to run for president. No one gave him a shot. How did he win the nomination? Remember those debates? Started with about yeah. 12 people, right. at least. He ran through them like a truck over bicycles. He used the medium. And he had experience he was, in the medium. Right. What was He had no pol- right. political experience. But they experience. show where he got to fire people. He was <laughs> a TV reality. It turns out, McLuhan would have loved this. He probably would have predicted it. Yeah. Uh, McLuhan, if he had he died of a, ironically, of a huge brain tumor, there's some irony there, um, in 1980, um, I imagine he would have predicted this. He would have said in the 21st century, you know, pres- you know you're going to see presidents who... Who uh, go berserk on TV? Media
3: creations, you could
2: say. Yeah. Um, it's our job to see through that. But if we don't understand the language of media as he did, we're we're just going to keep falling into the same trap again. Uh, scream like see uh, like MSNBC and CNN, like like uh, scared children. Oh my God! Look what he did, and he'll get reelected. I mean, or or Biden will get elected, and four years from now we'll get another creep. You got to understand the media. That was McLuhan's point. And he cre- literally single handedly created a field which no one else is. well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. There's a f- handful of only, people have continued. Handful. Media ecology. Mm. How the media, which is, we're saturated in media most of our days mm-hmm. and nights. Even so much more so than when more he was so. around. And he was saying
3: uh, in some of his other things that I listened to that, you know, we're taking in more and more things. And, and, you know, so we have this very complicated environment of media. And this he was saying, you know, when what we were taking in was TV and radio and movies, et cetera.
2: Although he did anticipate. <laughs> but now. <yeah. laughs> he anticipated the personal computer. Um, in fact, you can create a link from some of McLuhan's insights to uh, write to Steve Jobs. Um, and he predicted that as the. Uh, he, all technologies are extensions of the human body. Okay? Mm-hmm. So the wheel was an extension of the foot and the clothes were an extension of the skin and the telescope and microscope and book to a degree were extensions of the eye, radio an extension of the ear. But he said, uh, but electronic media is actually, starting with the telegraph, is actually the extension of the human nervous system. Now when I first heard that, that's, that's a stretch. Then you think about it. Wait a minute. How does electricity work? electrons, you know, coursing through wires. How does our brain work? Neurons. Neurons firing mm. and synapses. Yeah. And I just discovered this through a, uh, I was researching a talk that I was g- giving. And this is a synchronicity. It's a Jungian term. It doesn't mean it won't cause the other, but it's too much of a coincidence. The telegraph was the first electronic medium. Now let's just think for a second, okay? What was... The fastest mode of transportation of, of communication before the telegraph, and the telegraph was invented in the 1820s, didn't become extensive until like the 40s, 50s, 1840s, 50s, and 60s, when they started building the tele spreading them ar- ar- across the country. So think about it; it's interesting. Qu- what was the f- fastest form uh, or most efficient, I should say, form of communication before the telegraph? We think of the telegraph as this man arc- on horseback. Yes, <laughs> News, newspapers. <laughs> no, you you got it. The Pony Express. Yeah, I thought of that. But but so so think about. I mean, even back then, uh, horses could go faster than trains. Um, so, think about what McLuhan did. Almost no one else has. Uh, think about what that did to the hu- to human consciousness when when the telegraph was extended from the east coast to the west coast and that switch was turned on well you know what i discovered when they flipped the switch for the first time right to hook up all the telegraph poles from east coast to west coast needless to say that took a long that took about 30 years within months you had the civil war Hmm. now Civil War had been brewing for decades. But so had the telegraph been expanding for decades. So we're not saying that when they turned on the switch for the telegraph that caused the Civil War, but you can't ignore the co- that it's just a coincidence that you know, so another, and McLuhan often said that that media make people violent. They also can can in part, wisdom. It's how we use it. We have to understand it. But he said, you would not have had the 60s revolution. the uh, And we're going to talk about John Lewis. Um, you would not have had the civil rights movement and the women's movement and all the anti Vietnam protests and all the violence without television. I was at that Chicago convention. My mother was a delegate. And Abby Hoffman famously said, as the police were rioting and armed guard were there with rifles. He gleefully turned to a camera and said, the whole world is watching. Hmm. Mm. Abby Hoffman understood McLuhan, okay? Right. So, um So, uh, anyway, what was your take? Let's go back now to the interview because to me, it's, it's like watching a great martial art exhibition with him. And he could be a real pain in the ass uh, if he thought someone was being overly... S- intellectual or contrary or whatever again giving credit to newman and to brokaw they showed him respect but they didn't just accept what he said right
1: it's also interesting that they used two journalists to
2: do the interview and not just one (laughs) and both of them were the they were the two major right they were smart
3: yeah i sort of (laughs) wished i could have seen a little more of the uh so-called debate between Carver and Ford do you, you really have uh, to. Carter and Ford? that well, one image of them both in black suits standing stiff. But a lot of the stuff that McLuhan says is so provocative, and I kind of wished I was there to say, well, okay, now which moment in the debate are you pointing to or which thing are, when he talks about the whole breakdown of communications, was there some glitch in that debate? No he
2: was well, you see, <laughs> but no, but let's let's go again. Now this you bring up a good point. He often said, a good artist, which you are, puts on his or her audience. He's talking about environments, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think I've told the story before that. I love this one. He, he was, he, oh God. and he, uh, he was a very cantankerous and difficult guy, don't get me wrong. But as a thinker and a provocateur, there's been none. We, we, we haven't seen one better. So he was the guy that everyone was paying huge money to, 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 to advise them. Right. So this group from San Francisco of um, I think it was an advertising, advertising a big advertising firm, uh, hired him to come to San Francisco and talk to their people. Right. So they wanted to take him out on the town. And they said, uh, you know, what kind of food do you like? We'll take you to the top restaurant. He said, no, no, I understand you have strip clubs here. <laughs> uh, they go, yeah, they got he like to be taken to a strip club. So they were all taken a little bit back by that. So they go to a strip club, and as the woman comes out and takes off her clothes, he turns to them and says, fascinating, she's not naked, she's wearing us as her clothing. Oh, hmm. Now, whether that's even right or not doesn't matter. What a great thing to say! It's probably it's probably a brilliant insight, but it may not be. Uh-huh. He, he just loved throwing mm. flames out there. Right. But what? What? Think of? But just that's what a great line. Yeah. And it's Well, probably he turns true. things
3: inside out. I mean, that's clear. And, you know, it was one of his favorite books is Finnegan's Wake by James mm, Joyce. Correct. So you know you're dealing with someone who is about 40 degrees further along right. the trail towards the incomprehensible than
2: right. most
1: of us are traveling. <laughs> yep. <laughs>
2: And he read it every day uh, of his adult life. That's true. Wow. He read it every day. Not the book, I mean, but pages from
1: it. I'd have, I'd have to, too, because yeah. I, I didn't understand it when I, I read it. I couldn't do it either. But um,
2: uh, he, um, uh, he also made the insight, <clears throat> which was um, that uh, Impressionist art, Mm. Anticipated television. Now, when you first hear that, you go, "Okay, Pixelated. here yeah. he's going again, just no, making that, stuff." That up.
3: immediately makes sense to me. It makes
2: perfect <laughs> sense because mm. you, if you get really close to an impressionist painting, what do you see? You just
3: see the pixels, that little dots. Dots. The dots, yeah, yeah.
2: And a TV screen, we think it's a picture. It isn't. It's a series of electronic pixels, uh, which the brain. Our brain organizes into, organizes inside of our head into an image. So as he pointed out, the image on a TV screen is not on the screen. Now, when you say that, you go, (laughs) what are you, what drugs are you taking? (laughs) He's scientifically accurate. He was the first guy to point it out sounded like he was on LSD. Now the you know he's a very, he a, tele- a very interesting guy, the I have to say. The <laughs> image of a television screen is not on the screen. It's right. in your brain. Yeah. But that's analogous to a lot of things that we take as real out there that aren't. They're projections from inside our brain. Right. The guy was great. Anyway, <laughs> let's take a break. When we come back, Victoria has the pulpit and uh, we'll 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 See what journey she's gonna take us on.
4: Uh-oh. Try to see it my way. Do I have to keep on talking till I can go? Why you see it in your way? But the risk of knowing that I love missing be gone. We can work it out. We can work it out. Think of what you're saying. You can get
2: accordion <laughs>
1: accordion in rock music
2: we're gonna actually if we have time connect McLuhan to the beatles he had oh. a really really fascinating insight into the how the beatles mastered the media that's what interested him most about he didn't like their music to he was you know a class, classicist but he said they understood television probably better than hmm. any of the uh, academics out there and we'll give you an example Uh, This is the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Gruntha, your host, two co-hosts, Victoria Sullivan, our Woodstock Roundtable Poet Laureate. So we get a poem a little bit later on. Ron Van Wormer on air weekend warrior here. Um, And uh, we'll be joined a little later by our favorite street philosopher, Patrick Carlin, jazz impresario, Gus Mancini. And we're going to open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox. So fasten your seatbelts ahead of time. So we've been talking about Marsha McLuhan, what he was doing, and uh, Victoria, who still demands Ron. She she will not stop emailing me on Fridays <laughs> ah. and say, "What are we talking about on Sundays?" If I have any freaking clue. Uh huh. So I learned her, that lesson
1: a long time ago. Yeah, you don't bother me,
2: but when she's on every other week. I moan and I groan, and then I go, I owe it to her because mm. she's such a good sport for putting up with us <laughs> and does such a good job. I have to give her something, even if we're not gonna talk about it. So, <laughs> ah. um, so I send her stuff, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, but you had you, you said you wanted to uh, pay tribute to John Lewis. Well, you Lewis. didn't
3: introduce this with the, 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 the typical thing of the moment. He calls me up Saturday morning, <laughs> and I'm on a Zoom and I'm doing yoga. And I see on my screen where I'm doing the yoga Phone call, phone call. So happily I'm muted on the Zoom, so they're not going to hear this call. And I go in and there's Doug and I say, Well, Doug, I'm on a zoom, I'm doing you I go, Great Victoria, well let me tell you what we're gonna do. So <laughs> So I starts so I figure, okay, you know, I can see what they're doing and I'll just sit here for a moment and talk to Doug. And then he, he tells me about Marshall McLuhan and what we're gonna do and, and I say, Well, I'd like to talk about John Lewis. And Doug is like, Well, really, everyone's been talking about John Lewis all week <laughs> And I said, "Well, yeah, that's true, but then I said, "Well, he's personally important to me, and that kind of got doug's attention and and why and I've been trying to think about exactly what it is since then. You know, we grew up in the era of the civil rights movement, and it was in the newspapers and it was in magazines and it was on t v and I had a younger sister. And in my household, we used to get Life Magazine, which I adored. And I remember many days sitting in my father's armchair when he wasn't there, getting my sister up sort of under my arm, opening Life Magazine and showing her the pictures and saying, This is what's happening. This is what's happening. How old were you? <clears throat> I probably started doing it when I was about eight or nine, continued maybe until I was 14. Hmm. And I remember seeing black and white photos of what was going on in the South. And feeling dreadful. And also TV. And I don't know what year it was that I saw a black and white, because most of the black TV was black and white then, shot of a little uh, African-American child, a little girl, I think, going into a school in her little pretty dress. And women lining up on the roads. To me, big, fat, ugly women. But that was probably a projection spitting at her mm. spitting at her and i think as a child you know children really are into justice in a way that a lot of us let go of later i was so horrified i was so angry but anyway uh, years go by and and i march in all kinds of marches you know anti war and uh civil rights and feminism and uh, pro-gay rights and, you know, any any demonstration I can possibly go to. I've been screamed at in Kingston, you know, for standing on one side of the street saying, you know, we shouldn't be in Afghanistan and people on the other side screaming, go home, you know, (laughs) et cetera. So uh, I think it was late in the 20th century, I started thinking, who do I admire most in the 20th century, because I kind of like the idea of having a hero. I mean, when I was a kid, Joe DiMaggio or, you know, (laughs) Mickey Mantle, they were my heroes. But I tried to think, who were my heroes in the century? Because so many people are so flawed. And I came up with Gandhi, uh, Martin Luther King, and Nelson Mandela. And Mm. I thought, wow, that's interesting. All three men of color and all three believers in nonviolence, with Gandhi being the first proponent of it, in colonial India. And I just realized, you know, what the, What John Lewis called it in his final letter to the New York Times, but basically to the young people in the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, that peaceful demonstration that nonviolence is the more excellent way. And I love that phrase, the more excellent way, because it's very Buddhist. It's like trying to break down into a science. He, as a young man, studied nonviolence when he was around 20 uh, with a a teacher Hmm. down in the South that got together a bunch of young people and started training them, because nonviolence is very much a discipline. You know, you have to learn to take what you're going to provoke by going out and demonstrating. I mean, you want to provoke something. Uh, That's why it became good when the news started taking notice. That's why it was good that there were so many photographers there when John Lewis led that march over the bridge in Alabama because if there were no photographers there, it was just another day of police with batons beating on the heads of black people. But when the press was there, that 1965 march across the bridge had an enormous effect all over the country and an enormous effect in, in Congress, an enormous effect in pushing Lyndon Johnson. Uh, and and before that, he was the youngest speaker at the March on Washington in 1963. He worked with Martin Luther King. He was one of six organizers of that. And he was 23 years old yeah. at the time. And he was the youngest speaker. He was the final speaker at the event. So, you know, there's many things one can say about him, SNCC, et cetera, But I feel like... For me, this week, and I watched his funeral, which was long but brilliant, three presidents there, mm. three living presidents. He, to me, is that word that Doug was <laughs> sort of maligning earlier, hope. Um, but in <laughs> this in this COVID climate where we look around, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how soon anything is going to change and is it going to change for the better or the worse, et cetera, et cetera. I, I looked at this funeral and I thought this was a good man. Who led a good and committed life, and I think all of those four men I spoke of spent some time in jail, mm-hmm. and they were willing to do that. And <clears throat> Nelson Mandela holds the, yeah. the record 27 yep. <laughs> years, but- the willingness to go to jail, when they were doing the lunch counter um, sit-ins, and those started, I think, in 1960, they were trained in this nonviolence technique that you sit there, and if people pour their ketchup on your head or do other things like that, which would happen to them, you don't respond. You sit there. You hold it because you are going to create, in the long run, a sense of the moral right.
2: And there's also some nature's of nature's intelligence because um uh, we know, thanks to Mr. Newton, that for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction, yes, both in the physical world and probably in the psychological world because they're connected, and so the typical response to violence is violence, right, which escalates the violence so uh, it's, violence it's a, it's
3: a, or flight and they don't do either correct in they don't non-violence. flee either right
2: and that's the reptilian brain the reptilian brain has two responses to danger fight or flight right and the beauty of nonviolence as you point out is it finds a deeper it 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 transcends that that prison of fight or flight and offers a deeper understanding that while you're going to take some Physical and emotional beating. Ultimately, there'll be less because there's nothing to react to. Once you don't react, it, and it's. it's um, I, I'm guessing, playing a little in here, that's, that it's somehow connected to the martial arts, where you don't use your strength against an opponent. Mm-hmm. You use his or her strength against themselves. Right by moving out of the way I think
3: it is like that but it's it's the moral equivalent of, that. of,
2: of a little bit of martial art yes um and so it's it's uh, extremely effective and go back to Gandhi he literally got the most powerful army in the, the British army I believe was the most powerful army in the world when when he when they they, they left because of him mm. and his followers nonviolent followers so it's proven to be very effective but boy, it take talk about discipline.
3: And look at Nelson Mandela, because I remember when it was coming down, he was coming out of prison. De Clark was, you know, negotiating with him. And it was all around 1993 or so. And, and, and they knew what was going to happen. They'd, they'd have an election and Mandela would win. And that's what happened. But I'm thinking, while I'm watching that from the U.S. and all thinking about apartheid, I'm thinking there's going to be a bloodbath. There is going to be a bloodbath in South Africa. How could there not be? Yeah. The the black population way outnumbers the white population. They have been so ill-treated for so long. And Nelson Mandela, who was a believer in nonviolence, said no. And then they had these uh, truth and reconciliation yeah. long process.
2: This is after he'd been in, uh, um, uh, basically psychologically and physically beat up in jail for 27 years and still had the ability to now that's you want you want you want to have a hero there's a hero
3: he he is a hero and i was in his prison cell on robin island i visited there so i mean these people are like (laughs) in a crazy way it's like i won't say family to me but something like that i mean Mm -hmm. these are people who i really really respect and love for what they did
2: well well stated and um Uh, where McLuhan influenced me is going back to our phone call. when, As I remember it, when you said, I want to talk about John Lewis, me in my typically understanding and patient way said, oh, come on. The media's been talking about that for like the last seven days. Now we got to talk about it. We got two hours on a Sunday. Can we come up with something? And you doing your good martial arts just basically said something about connecting him to God. And now I went, oh, Okay. Now, wait a minute. So we're going to talk about him in a way maybe others haven't talked about. Great. Because McLuhan's biggest (coughs) critic, he couldn't stand cliches. Right. He would do anything to avoid a cliche, and I think he influenced me. And sometimes cliches are needed. They're usually true. But if you only have two hours a week, no time for cliches if we can avoid it. So well done. Now, (coughs) we're going to connect McLuhan to the Beatles. And we're going to connect the Beatles to what you just talked about.
3: Oh, and also, in my time of poetry, I'm going to read a couple of Langston Hughes poems. And you'll, just tell to you'll explain
2: to those who don't know Langston Hughes why. Yes. Okay. So, coming attractions. <laughs> now, if we think about, we take this for granted, but <clears throat> one could argue, not argue, one could point out that as important as John Lewis and Martin Luther King and other African-American leaders and white leaders were to the civil rights movement. Maybe an even more powerful force for the successful integration of white and black was jazz and rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Because who were the early rock and roll? Well, you had Elvis, but he was doing, he was basically imitating, he, as he would say, he was, he was imitating a black preacher. The Moves of a Black Preacher. It was accepted. It wasn't even accepted by most of it, but at least he was white. Okay. But Chuck <laughs> Berry, very shrewd showman. Not only a, he was a jazz guy, but he saw the money was in rock and roll. And he also realized he didn't want to, that most of the the really great blues artists who you don't have rock and roll without and who the great white white rock and roll artists pay tribute to all the time to their credit. Right? I mean, Eric Clapton can't say enough about blues artists. Right? They all because they all know. But those blues artists were, for the most part, poor, angry outliers. Chuck Berry said, "I'm going to be a success," so he knew how to play to a white audience, and he knew how to write music for a white for white teen- teenagers. And it was brilliant music. It wasn't jazz. But the point is that you could one could argue that rock and roll was ever was maybe the most powerful force for the integration of white and black. Values, because that's what rock and roll is. Rock and roll is the integration of white southern country music, and black rhythm and blues. That's what it is, and the Beatles, that they, they pay tribute to Buddy Holly, but they also pay tribute to Chuck Berry, um, and they you know who they loved as I and we're going to play a group that later on sort of kept up the tradition in the eighties. They loved these early sixties girl groups Mm. and you can see it in their call and responses and their Mm -hmm. early songs, right? They love the Shirelles. They love the chiffons. I'm talking before, before the Supremes hit, they loved Mary Wells. So they were picking up on a lot of black stuff. They loved little Richard. I mean, come on, Paul McCartney in, uh, I saw her standing there. That's little Richard. (laughs) um, Not only a black guy, a gay black guy. (laughs) So, I mean, in a way, rock and roll. But the McLuhan point was, he said, of all the people, he said the "The Beatles understood how to put on an audience. And think about this. Here the Beatles come to America for the first time. I'm trying to think of what was a bigger story in the history of the United States media than the Beatles arriving at JFK Airport. (laughs) I mean, I was 14 at the time, and I remember it. I remember that first Ed Sullivan show. It was all anyone talked about in school. I mean, this was more important than anything. The Beatles coming to America, right? So think of the pressure on these. Well, how old were they? 22, 23 years old? Yeah. Okay. So now they have a press conference. Now, if they followed the political handbook, they would have been straightforward, proper, (laughs) politely answered the questions. They pulled a McLuhan on it. They, oh, they, they, I mean, Lennon was, and well, George was amazingly sly. But John was the basic spokesperson. Mm-hmm. He was the oldest. Now, I haven't heard this one. I just asked you to pick this up because I just realized, because McLuhan points out in uh, The Medium is the Message that the Beatles knew how to put on their audience, particularly the press.
3: Don't you think John Lennon was very right-brained? Oh
2: yeah, and that's how well, he any did musician so, is. Any musician, he is. did
3: so well in those <clears throat> interviews because, like McLuhan, he would say any crazy thing that was passing through his head at that moment.
2: And he never. But here, and here's the underlying: it wasn't just about being crazy, although that's part of it. See, if all you are, are crazy, then your label is crazy. But if you are incredibly intelligent and you provide some clearly good insights and then you throw crazy stuff and now you got people really confused. (laughs) And that's what McLuhan did and that's what John did. And often they would throw things out not because they thought they were true but because they knew they would be... And they weren't just trying to provoke. They were trying to... They were just curious about where it might go. But there there was a more important thing and this gets back to martial arts that McLuhan did in every interview and the Beatles did in every interview at least early on. They controlled... The interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Right. They weren't willing to be just given these uh, Stupid sort Stupid of, Right. Questions. Canned, cliched questions and have canned, cliched so answers. So think about this.
2: It's called reversing figure and ground from Gestalt Psychology. Right. <clears throat> Instead of the them wanting their publicity, and I'm sure their manager said, hey, listen, you know, be, be nice to the tell press. Tell them where you're going
3: to perform. You know, tell them, and them what sure, time. <laughs> and,
2: because we want the press on our side. They weren't- um, criticizing the press they were just having fun with them Mm. and they no watch i I haven't heard this one but at all their press conferences there are master classes in McLuhan's uh, technique of communication it's a who's 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 wearing whom as an environment usually a celebrity being interviewed right is the object Mm -hmm. not the beatles Let's hmm. see if we can let's see if it comes out on this. Uh, audio yeah, I, can yeah. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> 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 Right, there's a lot of noise because they're trying to get ready, but look how calm they are. People are freaking out around them, right? They're calm as cucumbers.
4: Right, go
2: forward. you got to go forward. Now. Here we go. Let the feasting
4: begin. Unless you keep quiet, I don't even have it. Will you please shut up? Shut up,
2: They're smiling. Everyone's going
4: nuts. How was your triple? Fine, very nice. A bit bumpy over uh, Alaska, (laughs) though. Have you ever seen a, a reception like this in any... No. Never marvellous. We've never had anything like it before. Fantastic! No, it's the best ever we've ever had. Um, I don't think so, not quite like this one. Nice to be here. Nice, nice to be here, great. It's a good time. they can tell us, what they think they have. We can't tell you. Wish we knew. Good no pre- idea. Good press agent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm ask a question. Would you be quiet? Oh, 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 you please
4: sing something. No. <laughs> Sorry. Next question. Oh, yeah, that we
0: no, we need money first. <laughs> uh,
4: how much money do you expect to take out of this country? Nothing. Half a crown. Ten dollars. There's a question here. The question. Go ahead. No worries, okay. Cut that crap out. Cut that crap hey, out. Cut that crap out. Hey, hey, out. Crap out. hey Murray. Is that a question? Yeah.
1: What do you think of the comment that you're nothing but a bunch of British Elvis Presley?
4: It's not true, it's not (laughs) true. Does all that hair help you sing? What? Does all that hair help you sing? Definitely, yeah. Do you feel feel like Samson? If you lost your hair, you'd lose what you have? It? I I don't know, I don't know. The question here: How many are bald if you have to wear those things? Twelve of us. I'm bald. Oh, we're all bald. Don't yeah. tell anyone, please. <laughs> I'm deaf and dumb, sir. <laughs> it's dreadful, melody. It's we're only a bar, Please, quiet, please. please. This is a man on. On. I'm oh, All right, quiet. All right. Are you for real? Uh, for real. How would you have a feel? Yeah. About that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> are you afraid of what the American Barbers Association is going to think of you? Well, we've groomed quicker than the English ones. We'll have a go in. Did only want to get a haircut? All? No. Nope, no, no, no. Thanks. I had one yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> that's no lie. two, one. You know, I think he missed something. No, no, he didn't. You should have seen him the day before. What uh, do
2: you
0: think your music does to these people? I don't know. It pleases them, I think. Well, they must do because they're buying it. Why does it excite them so much? We don't know, really. I'll take you form another group and be managers. <laughs>
2: so again if you if you studied that from the content you'd say well there's not much content there but if you look at it from a standpoint of the back and forth the the press is crazed they're trying to kind of put them down you know with that they're asking the stupidest questions possible right Uh like not you know Tell us about your music, what your inspirations were. It's, hey, you think the barbers are going to be angry with you? And they were so calm, and they were laughing. And when, when Ringo's, when they said, you're just a bunch of white Elvis Presleys, and Ringo said, no, he was doing an Elvis Presley <laughs> da- <you> know, dance <laughs> imitation. I mean, they totally
3: controlled the chaos. Yeah. What's interesting to me, too, is the headset at the times, that this over interest in their hair because there were at least five or six questions about their hair yeah. and haircuts. And, and then they actually said something like, well, we're actually all bald. right? You know, but... And George said he had a haircut me, the day before. Right. Yeah. It reminds me of that period of time. Uh, the, the superficiality of, of... And that's towards the beginning of all those revolts of the 60s, you know, where things like the length of someone's hair could make people so angry. It was... Crazy, you know, get a haircut or leave the country became
1: some people's mantra. I remember it, mantra. as a 10- or 11-year-old, I went to a barber for the first time, and the the barber, I had fairly hair like theirs, and he cut it really short, and he said, I just hate these kids that look like Hitler. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, wow.
2: Ooh. That's nice barber extreme (laughs) here's your lollipop Ron
3: so many parents so many authority figures I mean I think that's the fact that they're playful is wonderful
2: there you go and that's what people misunderstood about McLuhan because he was he was a professor of literature (laughs) as they were as musicians they were equally brilliant in understanding television understanding the medium and hopefully we human beings we haven't done a really good job of it yet are going to have to learn rather than just complain about it and learn to understand the medium of the Internet. And now we're learning the medium of Zoom. Oh, yeah. And there are advantages and disadvantages in all these things, but we would do well to go back and study what McLuhan did because very few people have followed in his footsteps and become media ecologists. And the ones who have, unfortunately, they may be very smart, but they don't write well. Uh Uh-huh. And they don't give great interviews. Right. And McLuhan gave as good... McLuhan and the Beatles gave as good as interviews as you could get (laughs) in terms of entertainment value and wisdom. Yeah. Um, So at any rate, speaking of wisdom, why don't we tap into our favorite street philosopher, Patrick Carlin. We need a dose of Patrick. Patrick, good morning.
6: How you doing, dudes?
2: Hey, we're hanging in there. What's the the good word?
6: I'm having a great morning. I got a full sheet already, and I'm going (laughs) to... I'll start with my friends, the Beatles, because I came back from having a good day at the car lot, and I saw those dudes on TV, and uh, I just glanced over. I saw the hair, and I heard the tune, and I said to Marlene, I said, those guys are going, man. I said, they got it. And uh, then next thing on those interviews, let me tell you something, man. They were basically four Liverpool Street kids who learned some music, and we bothered them on an intellectual level they'll take you right down to the street corner and play the dozens with you. And you tell them about Elvis Presley, that ain't going to bug them. You can't fire, you can't poke them and get a retort. They're cool. They're way above you, man. Mac, as I call McLuhan, I got into him in 1971 when me and Marlene were running the kitchen for these rich kids that had finally found the right place to hang out after getting kicked out of prep school. And uh, these kids were into McLuhan. It was required reading, man. And I hit the dude immediately. TV is a cool medium, and radio's hot. TV can't compete with radio. Try, try showing a convoy of 400 ships going through the North Atlantic in heavy weather on TV and tell me what you got to do with logistics and all that crap, as opposed to a nice intro from a narrator on the radio. So McLuhan hit me just like uh, my man uh, Vinnie Van Gogh. Same alleyway, (laughs) same kind of dude. Mm -hmm. They could have hung with us. Then you got your Chuck Berry. Uh, Those kids who didn't want to be Osmonds and all that I managed, and they were young and they were great. And they got to back Chuck Berry for three days down at a place called The Warehouse back in 1971 in Orange County where all those real tight conservative dudes hung out. And wanted the kids to be just like them. And that whole warehouse, man, that was a big club. And it was full of kids in baggies and stuff like this. And they just had a real great time. And Chuck dug it, and they dug it. And I said to Chuck during that, I said, hey, Chuck. You're stealing their babies because these were the sons and daughters of those tight squares who dug Nixon and love it or leave it. And they were getting it right up their keister, and that made me feel good, man. (laughs) I love it. Kids are always smarter than their parents. Uh, Parents ought to step back and let the kids grow up, man. And they'll learn something from them. Meanwhile, you got me with hope. When you started it with hope, I said, what are these people kidding me? You know what my grandfather told me about hope? Listen, hope is just like wishing. And you know what you do with wishing? You can wish in one hand and you can take an S word in the other hand. And then you tell me which hand gets filled up first. I got a business card that says hopelessness is not a bummer, and the reason it says hopelessness is not a bummer is because one of my characters, Alice in Wonderland, in my $4.99 Kindle book, which is available actually sings the song, Hopelessness is Not a Bummer, Life is Just a Guitar Strummer. And she sings it at a Halloween party in Greenwich Village, man. And it's a great book because it's far out and it doesn't take any of this craparino serious. Now, I'm going to tell you something about the uh, about the Hopelessness is Not a Bummer thing. She even cropped up earlier than that in my other book, which I don't even know how you can get it, but it's called T.N. Blank and Sabe, and that starts with a nap. Just, and
2: wish, just and wish for it. And it'll show she up. also talked
6: it. about hopelessness. This is not a <laughs> bummer. But the logic behind that is that once you accept the fact that this whole scene that we're floating around in is going to end in a black hole, then you can get over that. Hope we get some artificial intelligence to save us and take us <laughs> to Mars. <laughs> Why is Mars gonna, uh, you know, get on fire a little later when our sun becomes a huge red tripper? And then the nice thing about hopelessness not being a bummer is once you accept the hopelessness of this big black hole swallowing everyone, you can appreciate the millions of baby stars that come flying out of the other end of the black hole. Well, uh,
2: once again, we count on an injection from our favorite street philosopher. Patrick Carlin, personal friend of the Big Electron. Give Marlene and Packy our best, and we'll check in with you next week.
6: All right, man. Everybody stay masked up, stay cool, and blank them all.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take a break. On the other side, we get poetry from Victoria. We get jazz from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, and we might even open up the old Woodstock Roundtable Jukebox.
4: Riding along in my automobile. She leaned and whispered in my ear Cuddling more and driving slow With no particular place to go